Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, and I'm Craig Shapiro. We've got an incredible show for you today. The co-founder and publisher of Racket Magazine, Caitlin Thompson. She lives and breathes tennis. She played at Mizzou and recently won the National Grass Court Doubles Championships. She's got unique insight into the sport and views that are at times controversial. We're gonna find out what it takes to publish a high-end tennis magazine, why she thinks best of five sets is obsolete, and what it's like to use the drug that got Maria Sharapova bounced out of the sport. We caught up with Caitlin shortly after the US Open. Caitlin Thompson, uh, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? Man, what a exciting couple of weeks. I'm a little relieved, to be honest. I love when the U.S. Open's in town. Obviously, David, the editor of Racket, and me, the publisher, we're based here. But, you know, it's great to see everybody. It's great to go to the tennis every single day. Gin and tonics and clapping and handshakes and cheering. But then when it's done, it's like, oh, man, whew, we still got a magazine to make. So that's where you're catching us right now. Head back in the game, nose to the grindstone, trying to get out issue number eight really fast. So, yeah, it was a good tournament. Yeah, so let me tell you, without gushing too much, Racket Magazine, um, nobody is doing what they're doing. The magazine is a piece of artwork. The writing is just phenomenal. Thank you. Writers from Condé Nast, from the New York Times and the Financial Times. These guys are writing about tennis, and yeah. it's just amazing. Thank you. Um, we really love it. And we all became fast friends. It's kind of a funny story. I follow this guy who takes photos of dilapidated tennis courts on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He, he calls himself 7-6 in the third. And yeah. he posted you guys' party in Brooklyn. And I happened to be in New York that week. And me and my pal Stretch, we took planes, trains, and automobiles to get out to that party. We, like, That's I, think awesome. we, I think we took a subway to a bus to, to the Gowanus, <laughs> to this warehouse where these short tennis courts were at. And, you know, we met everybody there, and um, we've all become fast friends. So that's been a lot of fun. So you have a podcast, which, you know, obviously we love. Ours has a best of five format, and I know that you hate five sets, and we will get to that, but this is how we do it. Um, And this is our first set, we call it the Off the Court Report. Typically, when we talk to players that play pro tennis, we discuss their careers, but I wanna talk a little about your tennis. Caitlin's a great player, she's Canadian, she played junior (laughs) tennis, she went to Boletari's for a moment, and she played at Mizzou. I consider Caitlin, you know, one of the people that we can talk tennis with in a very significant and interesting way. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm probably better than an, your average club player. Um, but, you know, by I'm far, now... by far, you're playing 5-0 tennis. And that's with not playing probably as much as you should be. Yeah, God, I wish I could play more. <laughs> had, we've, I've had the pleasure of having a great practice with her at Poinsettia Park in West Hollywood. She rips the ball off both wings. She runs hard. She's got a one-handed backhand. How are you feeling about your tennis at the moment, Caitlin? Pretty good. I'm playing decently well. You know, I switched to a one-handed about a year ago. And, you know, it's funny because if you are a competitive junior and collegiate player, you know, like I was, you kind of have a changing relationship with the game because you kind of are like, well, I'm getting smarter. Hopefully I'm making better decisions and I'm learning how to... You know, you're, you're always learning, um, even though I'm f- less, you know, fit and certainly slower and, you know, I don't hit as hard as I used to. So it's kind of a weird thing when when you kind of forge a new relationship with a sport, 
you know, based on, you know, your sort of, you know, on one hand I'm getting better. On the other hand, I'm getting worse. But the pinnacle of my summer was I convinced a friend of mine, um, who used to play on the tour a little bit. Um, her name's B. Bielek. She's awesome. Um, I convinced her to play the grass court nationals with me uh, at the Westside Tennis Club. And it was my first grass court tournament. It was my first national sort of adult tournament. I got a gold ball. Luke Jensen runs the club. So it was cool. You know, I got to shake Luke Jensen's hand and he, he gave me a gold ball. And more importantly than, you know, anything else, I got to play on beautiful grass courts in a, in a gorgeous, gorgeous club. Uh, and I got to do it with my friend. I did not realize you won cool. a gold ball. That is a tremendous effort. Um, yeah, it was fun. For, for those of you who don't know, to get a gold ball means you won the national championship um, in the USTA tennis um, that's a great effort, Caitlin. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, uh, uh, the other thing you should know is, you know, doubles is always about partner selection. So I had a <laughs> very, very good partner, uh, which, you know, I think it helped quite a bit, but yeah, no, it was, it was really fun to play on grass. Sure. You so. held your own. Um, Caitlin wrote an article shortly after, uh, Maria Sharapova got banned for taking meldonium. Um, sure. Caitlin basically, I think I had a friend in Latvia. Is that right? And and you had them bring over the drug, and you you did a cycle. Can you talk about that, please? I'll tell you all about it. So um, Ben Rothenberg, who's one of our many awesome contributors, who writes a lot for the New York Times. Um, I ran into him at a World Team Tennis match. I really like World Team. I like all tennis, honestly. I could watch tennis, uh, and I could play tennis every day. Uh, and I ran into him at a world team tennis match in DC. And he was like, Oh, Hey, I just got back from Riga. I brought you something. And it was a box of something called Mildronuts, which is a Latvian brand of meldonium, which is the heart drug that Maria Sharapova had gotten caught with in her system. And obviously got a two year ban later sort of reduced, I think to, to a little bit more than a year. And she had just come back on the tour. And I was like, haha, this is funny thank you for this. Um, I'm going to take it. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, let's see what's going to happen because my, uh, five Oh team was going to go to nationals. So I kind of had a tournament that I was sort of preparing for and I decided to do it. Um, and I kind of did it in league with listeners of the main draw podcast, which is one, a podcast I host with this guy, Chris Neary from Gimlet. We've been making this podcast forever. It's just two silly, you know, friends, college athletes, it's it's a very different vibe than what I'm doing with Renee, which is obviously more about the pro tour and, and former, you know, current and former sort of legends of the game. Definitely not but, apples um, to apples. No, it's not. It's much more establishment. Um, and the main draw is meant to be a kind of like weird and experimental. So I was like, hey, listeners, what should I do? And somebody there's, no, you know, the instructions were all in Latvian, which obviously I don't read. Um, but somebody found an English PDF that talked about how to dose and what to do. And so I took a dose of it for a week and then doubled up on match days. And I wrote about my experience for Deadspin. And I have to tell you, like, honestly, it helped me, but it helped me in a way that I didn't really understand. Let me just stop you for one second. Um, so the thought here, and, and I, I, I think I'm correct um, in this, is that, that the vascular drug basically helped with recovery times, right? Yeah, I was expecting it to make me sort of quicker, more, uh, sort of have more on the court longevity, be able to sort of run longer and faster. It didn't do that at all. And maybe had I read the instructions or done more research before I took it, which was horrifying to most people, including my wife, um, I would have known exactly what it was going to do. 
but on the other hand, not knowing meant I think that I sort of avoided a placebo effect where if you take something, you know, obviously you're, you're thinking it's doing something so that it is. Um, but no, it made my recovery like a snap. And, you know, I'm 38. I, I slipped a couple of discs in my back a few years ago. Like, you know, if I play more than an hour or two in a row, if I play more than a day or two in a row, you know, I'm sure you can relate, right? Like we get stiff and sore and like, you can feel it. You said you felt like a million bucks. I felt like a million bucks. I could have practiced five hours a day. <laughs> and that was really cool. Like that to me was like, oh shit, no wonder. And I felt like I could just practice so much in the lead up to this tournament that it wasn't, it was less about like, oh, I have confidence because I'm juicing and you know, my, my opponent isn't. And look, I could run for days. It's more like, oh, I can go hard and I know that I'm not going to pay a price, which in the back of your mind is always the case. Uh, at least for me, when I'm, when I'm, you know, sprinting after something. I'm not necessarily going to throw my body at it. So yeah, it was great. I would do it again. Part of me wants my to wife send is not some, thrilled. But somebody yeah. wants to. I would love to send somebody to Latvia just for my day to day. For sure. I mean, I think you can get some on Amazon. To be honest, it's an over the counter drug in Latvia. It is not in. It is not illegal. But you I mean, that, that, so that that being said, I think I think one of the, the important takeaway is that Maria was. The tail, this, she was tipping the scales in a very significant way. I mean, I, to not 100%. have any soreness uh, is unbelievable day to day. I mean, you know, I don't want to cast dispersions, but, like, it's pretty notable that she hasn't really had success since she came back, right? Like, she's had a few tournaments where she's gone deep. I think she went deep Madrid last year. She had a decent French Open. But, like, you know, she's not – she hasn't set the world on fire. And not to single her out, I actually think that they made a bit of a case out of her because a lot of players, a lot, lot, lot of players, many more than people realize, were on Meldonium. She just got caught. And I think they wanted to make a – they wanted to make a, uh, an example out of her. Like Varva Lobchenko, who's an American, taking Meldonium. Bethany Maddox-Sands was taking Meldonium, had a medical exemption. What do medical exemptions mean? Unclear. Like, I have a lot of critiques, which we can get to, you know, when we talk about how to change the rules. But I actually have a lot of critiques in, in terms of how the drug portion of, of the sport is administered and how it's tracked. Because I don't think it's consistent or actually good necessarily like I don't know I have a lot more opinions about it than I did at first it definitely helps additionally what are people doing that's not against the rules that is also helping and how is that different nobody knows and that's the problem and, and then the other fun takeaway was after you wrote the article um the USTA team that you played against I think they did they did they file a formal protest or they just bitched <laughs> they were pissed um the uh, they I heard some blowback from the league that they were thinking about changing the rule. Cause again, it wasn't, I even asked my captain before I took it, I was like, Hey, I'm going to do this. Like, is this against the rules? She was like, technically no. I was like, great. And I told everybody I wanted to be really on the record. Cause you know what, at the end of the day, and this is the other thing about drugs, I lost at nationals to better players, you know, like it didn't make my shots better. It just made me feel better. So I was the best version of myself, but myself tends to still like, you know, hit an unforced error after a seven ball rally. Like, and I, to have an erratic serve, you know, the drugs don't help that. And so, yeah, there was some blowback about maybe them updating the rules, which I don't think they've done yet. Um, but you know, I would say I, it's, if I had won the tournament with my doubles partner very easily, then yeah, maybe we, we, they'd have a case for, for overturning the rules. Moving on, we want to get into our, our second set. That's our on-the-court report. Um, what are your impressions of the women's side of things moving into the back end of the year? Um, you know, for me, I think it's a lot more exciting. I think the matches are 
uh, a lot more varied. I think it, the surfaces actually impact the winners, you know, and I think for me, I am somebody who gets really bored with the same names, the same matches, the same type of rallies, you know, so I am delighted that we've had a number of different Grand Slam champions, not only within the last year, but obviously like going back into last year as well. You know, Sloane Stevens uh, won her first Grand Slam at the US Open last year. So, uh, you know, Garbini Muguruza won the, uh, won the French, Ostapenko, you know, like this is great. There are basically 10 women in the, in the women's tour at the moment who have who are active Grand Slam winners, probably more, um, and who can win slams. So for me, that's super, super exciting. The one thing that I love is that um, the young kids are making their mark and disrupting a little bit. Obviously, Ostapenko, um, Sabalenka, you mentioned, she's going to be a Grand Slam winner within the next two years, no doubt. I mean, I just... She's just like a beast, dude. Like, it's so fun to watch her. It seems like... She really had a, a moment with a with a new coach, uh, Tersonoff. Yeah. And she just went on. She just became a different player. Unbelievable summer she's had. Yeah, it was the quarters in Montreal, the semis in Cincinnati, won the finals in New Haven, and then had an epic, really, truly, Naomi Osaka's only tough match the entire tournament uh, was against Sabalenka in the round of 16. And that went three sets. And I think a lot of people, myself included, were like, whoever wins this match is going to win the tournament. Cause these two are just beast mode. And I love the fact that they're fearless. You know, if you include a couple other, those names like Ostapenko, like this group of women who are coming up are they're ball bashers, like the Davenports and Capriati's of the world, but they're also, they have variety. They can volley, they play doubles you know, like it's really exciting to watch them. And I'm really like super bullish about the, the future of women's tennis because of this generation of kids that's coming up um, yeah, around you know, to, to, the counterpunchers. I also find, too, that there's something interesting. You know, I I tend to feel on the in the men's tennis um, and I love I love it all. But I feel like they sort of play like business partners a little bit. And the women, they're trying to chop each other's head off each and every yeah. week in a way that. Yeah. It just comes through the TV, and to, to me, yeah, that's a good it, it comes through the TV to me, and um, yeah, the stakes feel higher emotionally or something. To get to your point, and also to bring up the men, like it is a little bit businesslike, and I think also it's businesslike because on the men's side, we're seeing the same names over and over and over again, and the like sort of you know people like the men's tour if they like dominance and excellence. Whereas like dominance and excellence aren't that interesting to me. I like variety and surprise. So I like the fact that on the women's side, anybody can win at any given time. Um, you know, and I think that that's kind of why you see so many more like emotional stakes. Like I think all these women know if they're in a semi, it might be their tournament. If they're in a quarter, they can probably win it too. So like that's cool to watch because it means all the matches matter. Whereas like you're watching a Djokovic first rounder, and unless something goes terribly awry, you're like, well, this guy's going to have a cakewalk. You know, that's not the case on the women's tour. It doesn't seem like the young up and comers in the men's on the men's side, certainly as it pertains to Grand Slams, can get through. Um, yeah, well, that's we can have a big debate about five sets because you and I are on different sides of the spectrum there. But I think five sets is a, lot, a big reason why. Um, Caitlin has a lot of, you know, what I consider. <laughs> no, no, I consider them. uh forward-moving thoughts and ideas, you know, like the, the raising of Yankee Stadium. But anyway, moving on, let's move into set three. 
For our third set, I want to talk about Racket Magazine. I always describe it as a piece of art. And for the tennis connoisseur, it has pumped new life into the sport and explores lots of unique tennis stories. It's really, really special what you guys have done. Can you tell us how that came to be? Thank you. You know, obviously doing Racket is really great because it means we can involve like friends and incredible creators such as yourself. You know, obviously you had a great story about Fila's Martin Mulligan in what was it, issue number five? Um, it was so great. It was so well done and getting to use those archival photos was just super, super cool. Um, yeah, so David and I have been friends for about 10 years. We met each other through this kind of interesting Asia expat community. We were both working as journalists in Asia and we met through a mutual friend who was like, oh, you guys would really like each other. You guys should meet up. So our first like, I mean, date, I don't want to call it a date because I'm real gay and I'm also not Dave's type, but our first hangout was at the U.S. Open in 2007. He got us tickets and we stayed up um, until all hours watching Justine Enna beat, I think it was Serena Williams, and then David Ferrer take out Nadal in one of those epic five-set matches. We came back on the seven train at like 3 a.m., and I was like, oh, man, this guy's the coolest. He's super, super great, super nice. Uh, and, you know, we had this really fun friendship, you know, where we would hang out. Obviously, we're both journalists. Um, and we loved this sort of era of tennis that we felt like was a little bit forgotten or overshadowed. Just the idea of bringing back the sort of swashbuckling 70s and incorporating what we thought was cool about modern culture. You know, obviously, Dave worked at The Source. I used to be a political reporter for Time and The Washington Post. And I used to also work for Paper, which is like sort of a downtown club magazine here you know, and I think our cultural touch points were always sort of bringing in tennis, but I don't want to call it hipster, but bringing it into like sort of a larger cultural conversation. We didn't really know what that was going to result in, but it was always this sort of shared sensibility that we had between the two of us, you know, sending each other photos, sending each other articles. And um, one day I was reading uh, a really interesting piece about Monocle and how Tyler Brule, um, a fellow Canadian started Monocle and how he basically thought about print as this really luxury, more than luxury, sort of emotionally resonant medium to tell really good stories and how people, if you speak to them, will pay you money for that. And, you know, for us being in media sort of more at large, you know, Dave was doing a lot of writing for the New York Times and, and working for these large media companies where digital and clicks and eyeballs and scale and, and numbers was always the game. It was sort of refreshing to read somebody talk about like, no, 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 I don't care if I only have 100,000 to your 10 million, my 100,000 are are invested. They, they are touching my magazine. They're coming to our events. They're listening to our podcasts. They're buying things from our store. And I thought, oh shit, we got to do this for tennis. And so I texted Dave and he came up with the name in about 10 seconds and started drafting like the first dream, you know, 10 stories that we would get. And between the two of us, you know, we just like immediately hit the ground running because it just felt like, oh, this is the sum total of what our friendship has been about, what our dialogue has been about as friends. Um, and as, as somebody, and it was so, I don't want to say it was easy because making a magazine is not easy and starting a business is not easy. 10 years. It took me, I think five to make a, a documentary film where we film someone for four. So, I mean, that's, that's a major effort and, you know, the devil's in the details and you see it yeah. in the magazine. The magazine is just, um, so well done. What's next for the brand? What's next for the magazine? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, one of the things that we immediately realized is making a magazine filled with stories from all over 
the globe, all over history, all over the culture, um, was really cool and satisfying. Um, but also that it had application outside of a print medium. So we're developing some television concepts. We obviously have, uh, two podcasts that are affiliated with the magazine and we are, basically looking to create our first book. We want to be more of a cultural force within tennis um, because I think, you know, tennis is missing this kind of larger cultural relevance. You know, there's a lot of conversation about what happens on the tour each week and what happens, um, you know, uh, with some of our favorite stars and what equipment to buy or how to hit a backhand. But there's not really this larger cultural conversation that we really want to direct. And, and more than anything else, it has kind of come from people telling us like, oh, you guys should do a movie. You guys should do a documentary series. And it's like, yeah, we should actually. We have great, you know, basically great contributors who want to be in our world. So that's building that sort of as a larger cultural force is what we're kind of doing as a next step. Uh, moving on, we're going to move right into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. Um, it's just a word association. Um, are you ready? Ready. Coco Vandaway. Great game. Come on, give me something else. <laughs> uh, would love her to work on her sportsmanship. Patrick Bortoglu. Sleazeball. Why? I mean, this guy, I heard a story about him that he was the only coach standing in the media area waiting to be interviewed by media. Uh, that kind of tells you everything you need to know. That's it. I actually think he's a pretty good coach. Sasha Bajan. Beefcake. I don't know anything about that guy, but he's a beefcake. You seen his Twitter profile? He's got huge pecs. They're like pancakes. Beefcake. Um, Ostapenko. Nuts. She's nuts. She, you look in her eyes and she does not give a single fuck. She's like, she could be an arsonist or a Grand Slam champion. Lucky for her and us, it's the latter. Yeah, what's wrong with her? Why? And she's unfit, I think. I mean, I think that's just kind of her body. Uh, she didn't have a great U.S. Open, but she's really erratic. I don't know if she's just, you know. I think when you go for broke at all times, you're going to win some matches emphatically, and then you're going to lose some matches emphatically. She lost to Sharapova this uh, this tournament pretty pretty clearly, right? Uh, I, I feel like um, she had like this, she, she made another totally sick run and during Wimbledon and then just nothing. I mean, it's just bizarre the way she... Yeah, I think that's going to be her career forever. She's going to have like a run and be great and then kind of disappear. Uh, I'm just going to do it. Sabalenka. I mean, beast. Love it. Love her. Uh, Tiger tattoo. That's all I got to say. Tennis channel. Uh, Sinclair Media, man. Wish it wasn't owned by Sinclair Media. Wish they had rights to the women's tennis. Uh, some great journalists around there. I love Lindsay Davenport, and I love Mary Carrillo more than life itself. Mary Carrillo is my North Star. Um, have a lot of ideas for how they could do what they're doing better. Be in? I mean, look, it was a port in a storm when we didn't have any other place to watch tennis. Uh, and I love the fact that the Middle East is getting more into watching tennis. That said, pretty yeah, lots of room to improve. For the viewer experience. A lot of room to improve. Um, tennis Twitter. Love it. My safe haven. My, my, my happy place. It's so filled with smart, interesting people who care deeply about this sport. Sometimes it's filled with asshole fans, but that's Twitter generally. I'm, I'm a huge Twitter uh, tennis Twitter fan. Let's just stop on that for one second. What's your sure. advice to the navigation of, of, of this tennis Twitter world? Do you have any interesting advice? Uh, and, that, and by the way, that's for me. <laughs> I find I, myself going down some terrible rabbit holes that I 
need to stop. But anyways, how, how would you suggest navigating tennis Twitter? Obviously, like anything on Twitter, curate your, your list of who you follow carefully because that makes a lot of difference. But I think also what I like about tennis Twitter is there's a pretty good plurality of ideas and um, fanships, but the people who are best on Twitter, tennis Twitter account for their own biases. Like I, like, I prefer three sets, you prefer five, but we are reasonable people who can disagree. There's some Serena fans, some Serena detractors, but reasonable people can disagree. That my Twitter feed is sort of people self-identify and I think like to give each other the benefit of the doubt. If somebody's not doing that, blocked. You're done. Ah, I love that. Um, last two. Uh, Andrea Petkovic. I mean, she's a man. She's a lovely gal. She's a smart kid and a and a big reader. We mostly talk about books. And for our listeners, Andrea Petkovic, the German player, has a significant and at times hilarious role with Racket Magazine <laughs> and Caitlin's group. Um, yeah, and she's a frequent Racket contributor. She's always right. texting me asking what the next thing she can do is. So, I mean, I wish I could say I had to beg her to do stuff, but she's just she's got. She's got several books in her, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan as a an, as a friend and as a person who can add to the tennis dialogue. Yeah, maybe she's the most interesting player on tour. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, last one is college tennis. Oof, man, where to start? Having played college tennis, I wish I wish there were men's and women's. I wish it were equally funded. I think that has a lot to do with football and a lot less to do with Title Nine. Um, I'll defend Title IX to the death. Uh, and I also think it's a very interesting conversation for how many homegrown talent versus international talent get funded through college tennis. College tennis is vibrant and cool, and I, I want more people to like it. I think there's some changes that are necessary to make it uh, a little bit higher profile. Okay, moving on. This is our fifth and final set. And this is what we call queen of the court. Basically, if you were the queen of tennis, what changes would you make moving into 2019? What would you do? I would bring back the variety of services. I think that is spot, spot on. The fact that all the courts are playing, generally speaking, the same is tragic for the sport. It makes monotony happen and it's boring. The U.S. Open courts were so slow that people with big serves had no advantage. You know, Delpo didn't stand a chance in the final against Djokovic because Djokovic can hit all day. You have to hit through the court to beat him. You know, Vavrinka wouldn't have beaten him. Delpo didn't beat him. Um, and, you know, you need to have some competitiveness to these matches of styles of play. Um, I would make each of the seasons the equal amounts of length. The hardcore season's way too long. It's hard on their bodies. I would make the season shorter. Um, I don't know if that means putting Asia in the middle of the summer or condensing some of the tournaments and trimming the ones that don't do as well. Um, but I think making a shorter, more important season, um, important meaning every week matters, as opposed to this long, terribly drawn out season, would save the bodies, it would introduce longevity. Um, I would get rid of five sets across the board, never, ever, ever, ever. Um, five sets, I think, has uh, lost its relevant completely since we moved off of grass court tennis and the matches are too long and boring. My one question to you about it, how do you measure history when it's done away with? You can't measure history because we've changed the rackets and the strings and the surfaces. So the game that Rod Laver played on grass where five sets was a brisk two hour, two and a half hour affair is no longer what you're getting on hard courts that are slowed down with you know, uh, Kevlar strings and rackets that can produce unlimited technology and people who can train for marathons. For me, mar five sets means only marathoners win. And as a f fan of sprinters, 
uh, I'd at least like to see the variety. And so for me, you know, if you have to have a five set, if people are like, no, but those epic five setters, and I would argue, do you remember all five sets or do you just remember the fifth set? Um, you know, like that Australian Open everyone likes to talk about. That was a terrible match because neither Federer nor Nadal played well at the same time until the fifth set. Fifth set is great. Want to know why? Because it was the last set. So for me, tie breaks, if you have to have a fifth set only in the final, just like they do in the Olympics, nobody complained about the Olympic uh, format in Rio when Delpo made it all the way to the finals, lost to Andy Murray. Everything was three sets except for that final. I'm fine with that. But I think something needs to be sort of addressed to get these bodies healthy and to get the viewership. You know, four hours is too long to watch a tennis match. It just is. Um, and tie breaks in, in the last sets across the board. Um, you know, Renee Stubbs, my co-host of the Racket Magazine podcast, thinks we should have no lets. I'm fine with that. I think it's smart. Um, and I think having mandatory equal pay, if you get rid of five sets, then there's no excuse for anybody to say that equal pay um, is, is even an issue, which for a lot of people who don't realize equal pay is not something that happens in all tournaments. It's only in the slams. And then on-court coaching. You know what? Fuck it. I think it's so good for the viewers. I think it's so useful for the people at home. And it's interesting. And you know what? Some players aren't going to need it, but for everybody else, it's going to make the tennis better. My All of the rule changes that I'm that I'm sort of in favor for. And just like anything else, tennis has to evolve. We didn't always have Hawkeye. Guess what? Now we do. We didn't always have, uh, you know, the strings and the rackets and the training technology. Now we do. Just realistically, let's keep this game relevant by continuing to make changes to it to make it the most compelling, best tennis on the court we can get. In my view, shorter matches that are more intense is better tennis. A variety of surfaces means you get more winners and you're not watching some endless, you know, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic backhand rally in set number four of the Australian Open. And, you know, just even saying those words makes me want to kill myself because it's so boring. And I like both those players, yeah, but that you know, is a boring just, matchup on a boring surface in a boring part of the match yeah. that I don't ever want somebody's first introduction to tennis to be that. And you know to, what I mean? So that's why all yeah. of these rule changes have to do with keeping the on-court you know, activity, the most exciting it can be. You know, and by the way, to your point, you know, nobody is upset when they're at the Italian Open and <laughs> nobody's upset when they're at Indian Wells and nobody's, you know, nobody's like, oh, I wish this was best of five. No one's saying that, to your point. Yeah. I think some of us, we obviously think that, you know, these matches become sagas. There's something very interesting about that. But, you know, since we're here, what is your feelings about the chair umpire's duties and, you know, what, if anything, should change in light of, you know, the Chernobyling of the women's <laughs> final? Yeah, what a bummer, man. Uh, Naomi Osaka was going to win that match no matter what. I mean, nobody can ever take that away from her. She won it, and she, was, and she won it. Like, she didn't get it handed to her. That's the only terrible take I've seen. Like, we'll never know if Naomi Osaka was going to win. No, no, no. We know. She beat Serena already. She played better tennis. Everything that Serena threw to her, she was handling, and then some... Done. Osaka was going to win that match no matter what. My position was that the arguing of the the calls was was sort of tertiary. You know, Serena wasn't landing on the narrative that had been sort of created over this you know over this time. I agree with you. I mean, I think I think she felt nervous, and I think she freaked out a little bit, and I think that that was the cause of this. Can you take that away? and separate it from like the decades of like racism and misogyny, maybe not. And, you know, I don't know, I'm not in her head and I, and I haven't fought the battles that she's fought, which have been plenty and many times have been brought her way and laid at her feet because she's black, because she's a woman. I don't know how much of it has to do with the fact that she's a mother, but like for me, what I saw was two things. 
a player freaking out and throwing a tantrum because she was losing. And and I do think it's fair to critique the coach, the umpire, a little bit by inserting himself in a way that was uh, aggressive. I also think the umpire that got down from his chair and coached Nick Curios to continue trying. Like, what the fuck, dude? What Are a, you kidding me? I mean, that pep talk was just something special. That's egregious. Wasn't it? If I'm the guy who's winning against Nick Curios, Pierre Henri Hubert, and I then turn around to lose my match, I'm furious. I'm going to sue that guy for taking a match away from me. That's thievery. So, you know, one of the good things that could happen here, and I hope it does, is yeah, let's look at racism and misogyny. God knows, as a woman, there's plenty of misogyny everywhere you look, especially in tennis. So let's look and actually do a study about how proportionally women are affected by rule violations. The New York Times um, did a piece kind of cataloging a quantity. It wasn't a qualitative analysis, but like let's let's start looking at that stuff and let's make a standard, you know, issue rule of engagement for umpires and take, you know, like Hawkeye took away some of the subjectivity, let's take away some of the subjectivity. So it's not a call, a gut call, it's a application of the rules that is consistent. Because I, do, I don't know that a coaching call was necessary. He was coaching, but it, was it a necessary call? I don't think so. And obviously it didn't work because she didn't play better. So, you know, I'm not trying to be a both sides Nick here because I think, uh, you know, ultimately Serena has a lot to answer for in terms of her behavior. That said, the context of that behavior and the, the moment wasn't the right one for, for that sort of to happen. And it, it, it took away from Naomi's victory, which was going to happen no matter what. So we're here. Why don't we use this moment to, to take a look at the sport and, and adjust some of the rules and, and make the application of those rules more uniform? I'm not opposed to that at all. I think that's the only good outcome, frankly. Caitlin Thompson uh, making compelling cases across the board. Um, I feel like we need to have another practice and uh, some, <laughs> yeah. dr- some I'm drinks. I'm coming out to LA. Let's do it. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. And, Thank you uh, for having me. Yeah, it's our, our pleasure, and you are released. Thank you, Craig. Okay, bye. Huge thank you to Caitlin Thompson. Issue number eight of Racket Magazine is coming out soon. But subscribe and pick up their earlier issues. The magazine is evergreen. The stories are incredible. If you want to hear more of Caitlin's controversial concepts, check out the Racket podcast that she co-hosts with ESPN broadcaster, doubles superstar Renee Stubbs. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. The masterful Matt Degnan did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening. We will be back soon with lots more tennis talk with the most interesting people in the sport. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app. And tell your friends, thank you for listening. And regardless of what Caitlin says, say no to drugs. Till next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. Released.